Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Over the holidays, we're going to be releasing highlights from past episodes from this year every morning of Hanukkah and each day during the 12 days of Christmas. If you're a founder or investor and looking to meet more folks in the ecosystem, each week I host a networking event on my Upstream channel. The link is in the show notes to join on mobile. Looking forward to seeing you there. I'm excited to share highlights from my conversation with Michael Barlow, founder and CEO of Furnish. Furnish offers premium furniture rentals that feel like home delivered and assembled in a week without further ado here's michael what was that aha moment that you had and how were you thinking about validating your idea as well yeah you know it actually can be described pretty well as an aha moment mike because or the pain point had been in my head for a number of years you know so between i'd say finishing college and starting a business it's say seven eight years i moved five times three different sets of roommates across both new york and la i understood that the idea of setting up and moving into and moving around a home that you were actually proud of was a huge challenge it was a huge problem it was something that i faced it was something all of my peers faced, whether they live in New York, San Francisco, Denver, Chicago, Dallas, Atlanta, etc. So this pain point was definitely in my mind. Now, the aha moment was in early 2017 when my fiance, now wife, was actually moving from Chicago to join me in LA. We had met in New York. I'd moved to LA. She moved out to Chicago. And then she was moving to LA. And we just had a conversation around, okay, let's like help plan your move. And the whole idea of furniture kept coming up as a just a continuous pain point in her life, in my life. And the idea of buying, owning, moving, selling, storing, disposing of furniture seemed like a hassle that in 2017, let alone 2020, you shouldn't have to deal with like people were dealing with. There needed to be a service economy solution for making it effortless to set up and create a home. And so that's the literal aha moment. It was, wow, this is an tangible application of a problem that I've thought about for years. We're going to go push forward a business model against this and start validating. But yeah, it's good to remember the story that way and you phrase it well. 
No, thank you. Thank you. That's fascinating. I mean, it seems like when it comes to furniture on the supply chain side of things, you know, renting, transporting furniture, which of course, that was the pain point that you experienced when you were, you know, moving in with your fiance now wife. But, you know, I'd imagine it's very, very difficult on the supply chain side of things. And that's just me as an outsider. How did you manage to get around this in the early days and just a little bit of like under the hood there? You know, when I talk about this specific topic with folks, Mike, it's if I knew how challenging this was going to be, would I have started the business? <laughs> you know, you look back three years later and you say, okay, we figured out substantially a lot of the aspects of this. But, you know, getting thrown in an early days, it was, okay, we validated demand, which I've spoken about before, a lot of customer surveys, typical customer development efforts. And that was all very exciting and pointed up and to the right and gave, you know, myself, my co-founder, the green light to go start this business. Now, once you go beyond that, you say, okay, how do you, you know, you've pitched a dream to yourself and others. How do you go service a nightmare is one way to say it. And the logistical component of this is highly complex. You know, from an early days perspective, we were, my co-founder Lucas and I were delivering and assembling every order. We had a couple of folks we found on Thumbtack and TaskRabbit that would help us. For the first 30 orders, we did it all ourselves. You know, that really put us in the shoes of our now fulfillment teams and help us understood the ins and outs of kind of from process, procedure, really started thinking about what software we could build to help manage a fleet of inventory like this, as well as, hey, what do you need to know? when you go into a customer's home in order of assembling, arranging, what frequently asked questions do you need to have like on the tip of your tongue ready to speak to? How do you ultimately sell the service while you're in? How do you upsell customers when you're in their home? I mean, we have a very unique position being so close to the customer that we're actually doing what we call not the last mile, but the negative 10 feet. So we're walking 10 feet into people's home. It's a real unique opportunity to super serve the customer. Now in a COVID era, we've had to flip a lot of things and institute a lot of new policies and really think on our toes. But you know that aside, I think where logistics expertise and now a soft, whole software layer that manages that, Mike, has really landed us as a business is I think in a, in a pretty fortuitous position. I really actually loved your first comment of, you know, you're very happy that you didn't know how hard it would be or else you probably would never have started a business. What made Los Angeles as a test market a great test market? Uh, yeah, no, I'm very long LA generally, very proud resident here in town, as is my co-founder, Lucas. And one, we were in LA, which was helpful to LA is a huge market. LA is sort of like a country in itself. Like you're on the west side of LA, you're in Santa Monica Marina. It's a very different world than if you're kind of in maybe more of the younger West Hollywood area or Culver area. And then you go all the way east to Los Feliz and then you can go south and you're in the South Bay. And then you have Orange County, which is adjacent. You have Thousand Oaks, which is adjacent. And it's very much a sprawl of 11 million people that allows you to test and understand different demographics. There's a host of industries that have continued to build up a presence in the greater LA area, which we really like. And then, you know, from a psychographic perspective, Mike, LA, because of the variety of professions and the variety of people here, there's not one dominant industry. Sure, entertainment's big, but so is real estate. Technology is coming up. The services industries have always been big in LA. It's not like a, you know, more of a San Francisco, which is much smaller actually than LA.
play itself and it has its own psychology. You know, if a product works in San Francisco, it doesn't mean it's going to work in Denver. It doesn't mean it's going to work in Chicago or Seattle. You know, but if a product works in LA, it's more likely to work in the top 15 metros in the country. And that's something that we were really excited about being able to test. And that actually, that decision tree led us to launch Seattle actually as our second market, as opposed to San Francisco as our second market. So I'd love to hear your story a little bit about your approach to raising capital and also why you decided originally to go through, and I know that this is how we got connected through Techstars LA. Yeah, so I could happy to chat on this, and I will take them in reverse order. You know, TechStars LA, run by Anna Barber, who's the newest partner at M13 now. Congrats, to Anna. We saw that as an opportunity to really increase our network in the LA area, as well as leverage the overall network of entrepreneurs and corporates that TechStars brought to the table. I think my co-founder and I had a pretty good degree of experience generally. You know, we had a small team of five at the time, five of us total, and we just wanted wanted to do everything we could to ensure we would be able to see around corners where other entrepreneurs potentially you know, learn from their mistakes, learn from their successes, and put ourselves in the best position to mirror the successes of kind of the most successful companies that had gone through programs like that. And Techstars has over 10 years now of and a great reputation of experience. And so we look back on that decision actually and say it was a very good one. We just recently added a board member, a woman named Carrie Cooper, an independent board seat. And she's the former CMO of Walmart.com, the former CEO of a great company, a sustainable fashion brand called Rothy's in the Bay. She's on a number of boards, including a couple public companies. And we met her through Techstars, right? We met her and we built that relationship through Techstars. And now she's on our board and very engaged in driving our business forward. And so instances like that over time and from the like, network building perspective have been pretty critical for us. And so again, I think we tie that all back to that Techstars decision back in early. 2018. And I, I think that you had two questions, but that was one of them. Maybe I went off on a tangent, but... No, I loved it. I loved it. And then I guess after Techstars, when you decided to raise around, what was that process like? And in terms of, I know you also recently raised around as well, which congratulations, but what was that process like in terms of how you were able to successfully raise capital? Yeah. Raising capital gets harder and harder and harder. But I think with that, you have to really up-level your team, really up-level the, everything you know about custom, you know, your customer base generally, both current and potential. Where we were, we did a pre-seed round before Techstars. After Techstars, we did a seed round. We had some great investors involved there. I think we had learned enough about ourselves, added the right key pieces and key people to our team, and demonstrated a decent amount of product market fit. I mean, look, at the end of the day, Mike, we can convincingly tell a story around furniture as a service and the need for a massive category, like $120 billion annual category in the US alone, not transitioning at all to the service economy. You know, there's a huge opportunity to marry those two. And you tell that story and you have enough data to back it up. You know, my story is unique. Other entrepreneurs have their own stories, whether they're consumer businesses or enterprise businesses. But you have to be able to convince folks in the capital community that this need needs to be met. This pain point needs to be solved. And that's really what it came down to. I could, I'd say in a seed round, right? In a series A, you just have to have that much stronger of a team, that much stronger of a data set, that much stronger unit economics, consistent growth profile, and still be able to tell that same story in a convincing way. You know, I think so many companies that I've talked to or folks that I've either met through Techstars or otherwise, you know, getting from okay, stage to stage to stage is, you know, sometimes there's pivots involved. Sometimes, you know, you can't quite get there in terms of product market fit and you have to shut it down and try something new, which is totally 
totally fine, right? It's just the natural progression of the business. So what is one thing that you would change when it came to the fundraising process? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. I think I've never sat on the investor side, although my wife has, which is interesting. So she can kind of coach me through that mindset. You know, that said, it's it's less of something I would change, but more of something that I see as maybe a little silly. And that's the notion of TAM, total addressable market. I know everyone talks about every entrepreneur has a page on this in their deck, but it's, you know, you think about like, oh, I'm chasing the hospitality market. It's a $6 trillion market globally. And it's like, okay, it's a $6 trillion market. If you need a $6 trillion market top line figure to get invested, is excited. I feel like that's just the wrong way to look at it. If I can go out and say, I have confidence in being able to build a $100 million P&L, I don't care if the market's $400 million total. Like if I can build a $100 million P&L, that is a wildly attractive business for any investor to look at and for any entrepreneur to build. Shoot, some entrepreneurs will be excited about a $50 million top line. But it's really the level of confidence you have in how big you can get a company as opposed to the total addressable market out there. The total addressable market, one, it's going to be a stretch to begin with. Two, it's going to include a lot of international. Three, it's going to include a lot of incumbent players who aren't going to seed market share. And it's just somewhat unrealistic. So when going through our process, I think, you know, we try to stay honest. We're looking at a domestic category, $120 billion, less than 1% of that right now goes to rental. But man, wouldn't it be exciting? if 10% of that market went to rental and we were leading a charge there. And not only that, like, what if we're just focused on 20 to 35-year-olds who are making a certain amount of money, who are renting apartments, who are living in urban metros? Is that a market you can go own? And if you own that market, is it still exciting? And I think taking that honest approach has helped us. But from a process perspective, it's not always the first thing that's asked for. So I just think it's, you know, that's how I approach the process versus maybe the other side approach to the process. But we can talk about how my wife and I argue about these things later. No, it's interesting. What's one piece of advice that you have to current founders? Just one. Only allowed to give one. You can live several. You can give several. several. Well, you know, hopefully this podcast is helpful to your audience. But the one thing I'd kind of say is that um, something that Lucas and I have been pretty intentional about and that Lucas is, you know, my co-founders takes a very academic approach to, you know, to many things. And I, and I look up and value that in a meaningful way when it comes to organization building, whether it be titling or responsibility delegation and division of responsibility between every organization and division of responsibility between, you know, myself and my co-founder, right? And then our COO and then our level of directors. There's a level of intentionality that really has to go in to that in order to make it successful, right? You know, the last position any CEO founder should really be in is bringing in a friend that they then overtitled and gave too much responsibility for that they then have to let go when a business sees a level of success. I think that's something that I know a lot of folks who have been in that position and it's just a bad one to be in. Generally, like being a founder is stressful enough. So how can you find ways to alleviate that, like those pressure points before they ultimately kick in? And we got some great advice early on from some of our, you know, we have, we're very fortunate to have some incredibly smart angel investors, individual investors, whether it be Scott Cook, who founded Intuit, Jeff Wilkie, the CEO of Consumer at Amazon, Spencer Raskoff, co-founder at Zillow and .LA. They would echo a lot of the same sentiment you know, that I'm passing along here. So that level of intentionality around organization building is critical. And there you have it. If you enjoyed this, I highly recommend checking out Michael's full episode. 